Welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. We're creating a space to speak truth and examine context in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That means creating a path forward for everyone to recognize the benefits of inclusion individually and collectively. I'm your host, Omri B. Johnson. I'm a Topeka, Kansas, USA-born, Switzerland-based epidemiologist playing the role of an inclusion diversity and equity practitioner for the past 20 years. I'm the author of Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, and the CEO of the DEI-centered management consultancy, Inclusion Wins, creating culture from the hearts of individuals. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Sabrina and David Livingstone-Smith. Dr. Sabrina Smith is Associate Professor of Philosophy, might I add, Philosophy of Science and Biology, which was my minor in college, biology, but not the philosophy of biology. If I would have known there was such a thing, I probably would have changed at the University of New Hampshire. Is that University of New Hampshire or New England? I want to make sure, Sabrina. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah. Where you teach a class that really caught my attention, the Philosophy 440C, the honors class called Find a Place for Humanity, which I don't know if we're going to have time to go into it, but it absolutely blew me away given my kind of belief about diversity, equity, and inclusion work revolves around humanity. And of course, I also have Dr. David Livingstone-Smith, who is a professor at the University of New England. Is that correct as well, sure. David? Yeah. Yes, it is. And also a professor of philosophy, and you've written extensively on the notion of dehumanization. I'd like to welcome Dr. Smith to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Before we jump into the heart of our conversation, I'd like you to share a favorite song or movie that you can watch over and over again. And you could also add, or you can choose to add a, answer a second question, one book or one person who's influenced you or inspired you personally or professionally in your career journey. So whoever would like to jump in first, I will, uh, the floor is yours. Do you want to go first? A song or a movie? Song, brother. Perhaps I'll come back to that. I'm sort of stumped. I did think that I should have some of this stuff to mind, but I don't. Um, one who has influenced me tremendously, Ruth Milliken. Ruth Milliken is a philosopher. She's now retired. She's been retired for some time. And I often tell my students that I want to be Ruth Milliken when I grow up. But the truth is, I want to be a lot of people when I grow up. There are a lot of philosophers that I admire, but Ruth Milliken stands out as hugely influential on the way I think, the very general way I approach thinking about issues philosophically. Yeah, I'm going to turn it over to David. Okay. Well, that's, for me, it's very easy. The song is Bob Marley's Redemption Song. Uh, and person who's most influenced me or a person who influenced me, I don't know how to choose between my spouse, Sabrina Smith, 
Sigmund Freud or my grandmother. So we're going to squeeze them all in. Those are three pretty profound humans. But uh, thank you for that, for both. Sabrina, if a song comes to you. I can always come to mind. Young, young, what's her name? The woman from Vermont. Oh, Anais Mitchell. Anais Mitchell. Which one is it? It's a young man in America? Yeah, young man in America. It's young yeah, man yeah, in America, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. I haven't listened to music in some time. The way I'm constructed, I need space in my life for leisure. I don't do leisure very well. I'm not good at it. I know it's not a good thing. And it has been a tremendously busy semester, half a year, really. And I haven't listened to any music. I hear David listening to music in his room sometimes, but we sort of have some differences in our musical taste sometimes. But okay. Young Man in America is definitely one of the songs that stands out. Fantastic. Well, thank you for both of those. So I'm going to jump right in. First, I just want to hear a little bit, and I'll start with, with David. Tell us a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your background, specifically what are you trying to create in the world through your work? So David, could you give us a little bit of that? And then I'll come to you, Sabrina, as well as in the second question to talk about how I found out about the two of you. Well, who am I? That's a bit of a mystery to myself, but I'll do my best. So as you said, I'm a professor of philosophy. I came to philosophy in a somewhat unusual way. I had a previous career as a psychotherapist in the United Kingdom and moved from there, transitioned from there, to use a fashionable term now, to philosophy. You also mentioned my work on dehumanization. So for the last, oh, about 17 years now, that has been my topic. So I've written three books on this subject, given lots and lots of talks, and it's really at the heart of my research and really importantly, not just research in the stuffy academic sense. I think it's a very important thing to understand because it's a very dangerous phenomenon. And this, you know, it ties in with the reasons we're here on your podcast because dehumanization and racialization, in my view, are very intimately tied together. Fantastic. Thank you. And Sabrina. Similar question. Who are you? What you're working to create in the world? I had a little bit of a palpitation there. Um, no who I am. So as, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of philosophy. I teach at University of New Hampshire. My area of specialization, as the lingo goes in the profession, is very generally philosophy of science in more specifically philosophy of biology. I'm interested in and have been really since pre, but certainly in grad school, I'm interested in the ways in which philosophy in particular, because that's my field, is able to answer questions that one might say are deals with the sort of material issues of the world. So we sort of need to, in my view, look to science to see what science is saying about what kinds of things human beings are, for instance, to, I think, settle some of the questions that are important to us, ethical questions, social questions. And so I go to specifically to biology precisely because 
we have this notion that human beings are in some sense special, that people talk about human nature, that there is such a thing as human nature and human nature gets realized differently, I guess, depending on what kind of group of people you are. So if you're racialized a certain way, then there is a sort of racialized form of the human nature. So I'm interested in these kinds of questions. And so as a philosopher of science, I want to see, I tell my students that as a philosopher of science, I see my role not as a scientist because I'm not a scientist, but as someone who is an observer of what scientists are doing. And I'm trying to figure out what their processes are, uh, so what their methods, what are they using to come up with these with these answers to questions? Why do they choose the kinds of questions that they choose? For whom are these questions important? What do they hope to settle or tell us about ourselves and the world when they settle these questions? And, you know, I sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm on board with the projects of scientists. And then there are other times and there are places to ask questions and to try and figure out what's going on. So does yeah. that have you interact with some of the, you know, well-known biologists and scientists in the world to talk about how their work is impacting, you know, our collective we? I have had occasion to have conversations with some scientists. We know some of people who are scientists, but as a general matter, in terms of the professional setting, I tend to read texts that are philosophical dealing with science. So the interaction tends to be more with work in the philosophy of science produced by philosophers. And of course, Sometimes you really have to go to the scientists. You have to look at what they're saying to make sure that what the, science, the philosophers of science are talking about is actually what God, the scientists are talking about. So okay. sometimes, but really the center of gravity is really amongst my philosophical folks. It might be worth mentioning that just during this last year, you were oh, yes. invited to oh, give yes. presentations at, at two scientific meetings in France. That's true. You're a bit too modest, son. Yeah, I'm glad I, that you're here, David. I actually had forgotten that. I didn't remember yeah. the French story. Just for our audience, it's not easy to find Sabrina on social media. So if you are making that exploration after you listen to this podcast, which I'm imagining many of you will, you won't find much. So David has a lot, relatively. For Sabrina, you're going to have to dig into the scientific and the philosophical papers and a couple videos here and there. So just know that, folks that are out there. Folks can email me at my university email. Even better. Uh, even yeah. better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what I first came to know of you two after reading the article, The Trouble with Race and Its Many Shades of Deceit how education programs intended to foster diversity, equality, and inclusion do harm and why it's time for a radical shift. So I was blown away by the way you all framed this paper, but not just because you wrote it, because people could write about de-emphasizing race, but you all did it and you have such depth around the topic of race. And I do the, the air quotes because I know how you all shared with me before how you frame it. 
when you talk about race. Let's start with a bit of context setting. I want to get some context before we jump into a few more questions. So, Sabrina, what is race as is typically defined? And then how, if at all, do you define it when you have to talk about it with an audience or with colleagues or with students? So one of the challenge of that question, I think, is that my position, our position, is really to have a world in which racial concepts don't refer, as philosophers would say. So when I talk about, I say, the telephone, the claim, the telephone, refers to the item, the telephone, just in case there is one, right? Mm -hmm. And we think we successfully refer to things that are in our world. We have name for things, right? Similarly, with racial concepts, if someone were to say off me, you know that podcast that we watched the other day, we listened to with that, those two people, those two philosophers talking about race, you know, the black one and, you know, the white one, those terms would refer and the audience would understand what's going on. Now, I envisage a future, to be very clear, it's a very distal future. But it's a future in which such terms just don't appear in our landscape. So on the one hand, I want to undermine and hopefully eliminate the need for such concepts. But the world that we have right now, in order for me to communicate with folks, to give the folks who are watching and listening to this podcast some sense of what's going on, I need to define my concept, right? What do I mean by race? So all of that by way to say, look, in the academy, we typically hear people say that race is, quote, a social construct, by which they mean to say that it's not the case that human beings belong to these discrete racial groups. Rather, human beings have been ascribed racial belonging to members of racial groups, right? Or rather, racial concepts of being ascribed to human beings. And we all understand that. So when people say white people, black people, and a non-color concept, Asian people, we all kind of know what's going on, right? However, it doesn't mean that there really are people in the world who are white. And here, it's very important because it's not white or black or Asian in these merely conceptual way. That is to say that we don't mean to say she's only black because of their skin color. Rather, her blackness consists in what I would say are these real metaphysically loaded stuff, like views about black people, right? That they're apt to be criminals, they're apt to be athletes. They're apt to be less intelligent, just as a matter of their evolutionary history. That's just what biology has given us. And similarly, with respect to white people, these people are white, not merely because of their skin color, but because of what white, being white consists in, being elevated, being above, being better than in these ways and that ways, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm saying all of that with respect to the social construction of race within the academy. 
those philosophers and social scientists who are apt to think that race is a real thing, they mean to say in that non-contentful way that there really aren't facts in the world about white people and black people and Asian people that make them so very different. There are facts in the world that make them different on account of how we have decided to construct our world, right? So we have constructed these differences, that there is a hierarchy is a matter of what we have done, that there is inequality is a matter of what we have done. And so they want to deal with race on those terms. And they say, well, someone like me and David who say race doesn't exist, we're foolhardy because you want to know if race exists, ask a black person in the United States and they will answer yes. And here I'm on board. I say, yes, race does exist. But let's be very clear what we mean by race existing, because the origin and I think still to this day, amongst the folks and even amongst fancy academics, I think that there is a sense that all the other stuff, all the other elements that go along with race, they can't help but come along for the ride. And that's the problem with this. David, you talked about this and, you know, in the article, as well as in your book, Inhumanity, the one that I got a chance to read, which is the first of me reading through all of them. And you said something that was quite profound and it really ties in with what Sabrina just said about what comes along for the ride. So I'm gonna just quote just a couple lines from the book. You said, resisting race is crucial for resisting dehumanization because as long as racial categorizing persists, dehumanization is just around the corner. You go on and say, after a lot of other profound statements, if you hold on to the concept of race, racism will come along for the ride. Can you talk about that a bit? Because we are very stuck on race. And Sabrina just said, these other things come along for the ride. You've reinforced mm -hmm. it in your books. And since particularly it's exacerbated since 2020 and the pandemic, between looking at the health disparities that we've broken down by racial categories. And I'm an epidemiologist, so I've been breaking down categories of by race for years. <laughs> and so now this is this concept of us de-emphasizing it is blowing me away. So if racism comes along for the ride with race, how do we make sense of the dynamics of racialization if we just de-emphasize it? Well, it's not a matter of de-emphasizing, actually, our position is more radical hmm. than de-emphasizing. It's abolition. We're race abolitionists. And so I guess at the core of your question is the racism and race, our claim that they are intertwined. Racism is part of the notion of race. Well, we can approach that on two fronts. One is to look at generally speaking, what's meant by race. It's not the only thing that the word means, the word's used in different ways, but I think this is very pervasive and very toxic. So the idea of race is aimed at explaining human biological diversity. 
right? So if we look around the world, people come in all kinds of shapes and colors and sizes and so on. And there are geographical patterns to these things. That's why race in a very thin sense, just by the way, can be useful in epidemiology, but it can also conceal a great deal because it homogenizes people. Right. So what does that amount to? Well, the idea of race is that there are a few fundamentally distinct kinds of human beings. Those fundamentally distinct kinds of human beings account for all of humanity. So one is either a pure specimen of one of these kinds or a mixture of two or more of them. Now, right away, of course, this is bio, scientifically, it's nonsensical. That's not how population structure works. But we're leaving this aside because we're dealing with a folk conception. And the kind of conception which is just in the air, both outside of the academy, but also inside. Because people can develop all kinds of fancy theoretical ideas, but race is an ideology. It's a system. It's socially embedded. So I'll get off of this aside in a moment, you know, when... What academics say in the seminar room is not necessarily corresponding to their attitudes when they leave and they're on the bus or on the street or something like this. Okay. So a few fundamentally different, distinct kinds of human beings. Membership in these kinds is transmitted primarily by descent. So the idea is your ancestry determines your race and your appearance is merely symptomatic of that. Well, why should ancestry play this sort of role? That's because of an often unarticulated idea that there is something on the inside. The metaphor of blood is often used, something in your blood that's transmitted down the bloodline, which makes the case that you're one race or another race. And finally, very crucially for your question, these racial kinds are organized hierarchically. So they're not innocent, descriptive things like if you say someone, you know, is bald or someone is tall, that those are fairly neutral. Race is very loaded. It's loaded with background ideas about superiority and inferiority and so on and so forth. Now, this is completely understandable if we look at the origins of notions of race. Different scholars date this differently. I think I support Geraldine Hang's view that racialization in Europe began in the Middle Ages. The first, tar the first targets of racialization were Jewish people living in Europe. And then gradually as colonialism and the both trans-Saharan and trans-Atlantic slave trades got going, racialization kind of expanded from that point. So why did it, given what explains that history? Well, I think it's pretty simple. And I think most scholars would agree with me that people racialize other people to legitimate their oppression, their, their enslavement, their exploitation, or their extermination. And if that's the case, we see that racism 
is kind of sedimented into the foundations, the ideological foundations of race. Wow. So let me kind of see how we can unpack that a bit. When you think about this notion of race, which, you know, has made people feel quite proud and, you know, James Brown, he wrote songs about it. Other people have yeah. wrote songs about it. People write books about how proud they are to be black. Actually, I being black is cool. I like it. It's one of those things that I have hung my hat on for a long time. And I then have in reading your work, and then I watched a video with you, Sabrina, and you did a brilliant talk. And on that talk, you said, be very, very open-minded. As I tell you that I am not a black woman. And I thought, wow, what are the black women that watch this going to say <laughs> that consider themselves black women? And so along these lines of what Dave was saying, Sabrina, and you talked about this a little bit, the ascription versus the subscription. So can you talk a little bit about that distinction and why you're not a black woman, according to the philosophy that you brought forth in that talk? Sure. Sure. So I think my case is interesting for this conversation because I was born in Jamaica. I left Jamaica as a late teenager to go to the UK and from the UK came to the United States with David. When I was growing up in Jamaica, I can recall that we were poor. I can recall that my mom worked in the tourist industry, so she had cause to interact with white people and Asian people and people from abroad, foreign people. So I knew that my skin color, my country of origin, the history of my country was all fashioned from this very long history of the abuse of people, right? So I'm aware of all these sort of facts. But those facts, they sort of had limited import for my life growing up as a child in Jamaica. I don't recall ever experiencing myself as somehow less than, that the possibility of a life that was full and big was not available to me. To the extent that I worried and my family worried about it, it was really because of financial lack, that we were poor people. And if you're poor, then your opportunities are limited. But it never occurred to me about on account of being racialized in the very thin way that we're racialized in Jamaica, that is, you know, we're black people. We're black people in Jamaica, but that's the, about it. What does that mean? It means that, well, we are adorned this way and we have a particular kind of history, so ancestry, but it means nothing else about the possibility of, uh, you know, Jamaicans in general, Caribbean folks in general, and certainly me in particular. So I grew up with this sensibility. I was a 
decent student in high school. I went to the UK to study. I got to the UK. The first ex experience I had of, I guess, funniness about race was the immigration officer proclaiming that I spoke English well for a Jamaican. And I remember being stumped, you know, just sort of like, what is he saying? What does he mean? I was stunned, really. Just sort of, I can't really assimilate. I don't know how to assimilate this because, of course, you do know that we are British. <laughs> because, you know, by the time I got to the UK, Jamaicans weren't any longer using British passports. But, you know, I left Jamaica at the time when there were people there who traveled to the UK with their British passports. So this just seemed kind of weird to me. So all of that to say, I arrive in the United States and after living in the UK and realize that this race thing, although I experienced it there, it was sort of on steroids in the United States, that people really are black and people really are white, that there are sort of expectations and worries and amazement, the achievements of so-called black people. And of course, Given my developmental history, my psychological developmental history, right? I was born and reared in a context in which the possibility of exercising my brain was available to me just in case opportunities were available to me such that I could exercise my brain. And so that I achieved anything with my life is more, my goodness, I pushed through and my family pushed through, even though we were poor. And I consider that kind of a handicap. The handicap principle applied because of economics and culture, but it didn't apply because I somehow overcame my blackness. I didn't evolve away from the inferiorness of blackness and, you know, sort of achieve feats that are beyond the possibility for black people. And so... Having moved to the United States and having started to have the experience that this wasn't just a mere way of describing people, this is contentful. And if you're going to take on being black here, notice the kinds of things that you're going to have to take on. You're going to have to sort of be this kind of person for whom where you are, who you are, is something that is extraordinary because you're black. And of course, I wanted to have nothing to do with that. I still want to have nothing to do with that. I'm not extraordinary. I'm not, I am amongst the people who have been given opportunities and I grabbed them and did something with, that I desire with my life. My sister, who's still in Jamaica, is brilliant. And were she to have been given the opportunities I've been given, she would have excelled as well. So your question, and not a black woman. What do you mean by that? Well, it being a black woman is descriptive. I have certain phenotypical features, then yes. But if being a black person equals all of these things, you've elevated professionally to the rank of uh, that is supposed to be beyond people like you. You've, over. You've, you've married somebody who is better than you. All of the stuff that are toxic, as David said, associated with race. You have to work five times harder to be seen or to blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff. If being black 
equals those things, I want to have nothing to do with it because I never wake up thinking of myself as occupying an inferior position. I wake up occupying the position of being a person who deserves certain kinds of rights and know that she has certain responsibilities and expect living my life to be accorded certain kinds of professional and other courtesies. And when they are not forthcoming, I am not afraid to say you've stepped out of line and that is inappropriate, right? So it's on account of the way the world is supposed to see and think about Black people. And to some extent, the way in which Black people have seen themselves that I'm rejecting, it's those things I reject. Now, you asked me something quite specific, and my answer is long. Maybe you can edit somewhat. The way I think identities work, I think identities are the kinds of things that are conferred on people. An identity is ascribed to an individual given the social context they find themselves in. Because do remember this. Human beings are social. Everything about our lives is socially constructed, right? We are this thing, whatever this thing is, because we construct the way in which we become this thing. We're more than the raw biological material, right? So our identities initially are ascribed, they're given to us. And we take on these identities. So we subscribe to these identities, right? Sometimes it's done in a way, in fact, I don't think it's something that is active. We don't, I don't wake up one day and say, you know, I want to be a woman, for instance. It's just so happened that the context in which I was born, they christened me a female child as a matter of my sex. And therefore, as a matter of how gender concepts work, I was reared as a girl and a woman. I also had an internal construction, an internal idea of myself, in part on account of what the world gave to me, that I am indeed a woman. And so I subscribe to being a woman. I think race kind of work similarly to that because I think this is how identities work. Now, it's interesting in Jamaica, being black is very thin. I did not experience it as having the specific content that race has in the United States. So while in Jamaica, I might have answered to being a black person, which to be, I've never heard anyone describe me as such, but being described as such would have been innocent. In the United States, it was jarring. I heard it. I heard it and I felt it and I pushed back against it. And that's at the point when I realized that this identity that is being ascribed to me in this new context was one that I simply <laughs> do not subscribe to and won't subscribe to because to subscribe to it would be to subscribe to all these problematic elements, which I think I simply don't satisfy, nor do I think anyone satisfies. Thank you for that. Now, obviously, I'm American. I, I live in, in Europe now. But if, and I'm in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. So, David, if somebody came up to you and said, you know, you're married to a Black woman, um, and you said, uh, no, I'm not. I'm married to Sabrina. 
and you, in a way, negated the idea of her racialization. How would that come? I don't know if it's ever happened, but how do those conversations go as a race eliminativist or other <laughs> ways that you see yourself happen to be married to somebody who has darker skin than you do? Yeah, well, there are various ways I could say it, but it's also worth pointing out that, as Sabrina said, the idea of race is quite a deep idea, and we know that race does not equal skin color. Right. We know that for a number of reasons. I mean, one of which is, would be exemplified by my Jewish grandmother, who had very pale skin, very, very blonde hair, very blue eyes. But that would not have had her, if she had the misfortune not to have emigrated with her family decades before, that complexion would be no obstacle to her being gassed in Treblinka on racial mm -hmm. grounds. So that's one example. And the other is, of course, passing. You know, the whole idea of passing presupposes that race is not, does not equal appearance, right? So with that out of the way, there are many ways I could address that. I could say, well, my spouse is certainly a woman who is racialized as black, or I could say she is a Jamaican American of African appearance. It would be wrong to say she's, well, it's not wrong, but it's misleading to say, oh, she's Jamaican because there are plenty of people within Jamaica who are racialized differently and they're just as Jamaican as someone whose descendants were brought from West Africa in chains. So there are lots of workarounds here that, that I'm totally comfortable with. Sure. That, sound, that sounds very academic, David. I mean, you yeah. know what? You have an anti-racist <laughs> activist in your face saying, yeah. you know, you were married to a black woman. and you Yeah, but that's, then that requires uh, some kind of so Socratic exchange with the first. It's not simply giving a response. And so, you know, the starting point, let's suppose we're sitting down, me and the anti-racist activists, we're having a couple beers and we're talking. I might say something like this. Let's imagine, well, let's ask ourselves a question. If Sabrina is black, what makes her black? What is it to be black in the first place? And then I might, should the opportunity arise, say, let's engage in a little thought experiment. You and I enter a time machine and we go back 700 years to, let's say, Ghana. And you say to the people that you meet, oh, lots of black folks. Well, what do you think the response is going to be to that? It's going to be something like this. Black? I'm Igbo. Right? I'm not Fulani folks over there. None of us are black. Like, what are you talking about? Um, I mean, visually we're brown. What does that even mean? Okay. So how did blackness come about? Well, I think the history is pretty clear on this. It's part of a white supremacist project. The category black lumped these diverse groups of people together and essentially it meant enslavable, right? 
identities were erased. They were homogenized. A category was imposed on these people. Now, when I say imposed, I mean it. I mean, enslaved people didn't have any choice about this. And of course, over generations, enslaved people adopted this characterization. They didn't have any options, really. Right. Blackness gets created, and of course, its counterpart, whiteness, gets created too, through these sorts of historical processes where people internalize the invention of their oppressors. That's the way the conversation would go. And if my interlocutor said, well, yeah, but what about black culture? I would inquire about that as black culture. Do you think that Kikuyu culture is the same as Jamaican culture, which is same as African-American culture? These are all, you know, valid and important ethnic notions. To be African-American is to occupy a certain kind of ethnic space, which is different than being, you know, a, a Fulani person or a Kikuyu person or a Jamaican person. These are very significant differences, which race in all of its oppressiveness erases. I want to throw a word, a name out to you. And Sabrina, I want you to follow up with David, but weave in a little bit about this when I say Rachel Dozial. So just remember that name as you respond to what David said, Sabrina. So I sort of wanted to pick up from the thread that David was pursuing here. I think you rightly say that his initial answer was academic, and I think his further answer was also academic. But I also want to say that he would have, and I've seen him, he would have what is called an academic conversation about this mm -hmm. matter. I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, I know what the person is talking about, but he would right. insist, and he has said in response to someone talking about me that she's Jamaican, Jamaica, you know, Sabrina is Jamaican. And then when you notice that there is something like a discomfort, then you, it's an opportunity to talk, to sort of let the person know where you're coming from. One of the things that we try to do, I certainly try to do it when I'm teaching, and although it's an academic setting, I'm really trying to explain to my students that for me, at least, this whole issue is, it's consequential. I don't think about or write about this matter because, well, it's a line on my CV. Yeah. It imposed itself on me and I decided to turn my attention to it and address it. I say skin in the games, that this is really consequential. And I want to imagine a future where really we're not doing this stuff anymore because we don't need to do it anymore because we've acquired the requisite knowledge you know, to show us that we don't need to do this anymore. So you know, what I would say to the folks watching and listening, and you're thinking that these two people, they are loony, they are crazy. What kind of world do they live in? We live in the actual real world. Yeah. There's no question that in the clothing that I wear, the biological clothing, to the world, I'm a black person, first and foremost. And I can't do anything about that. So I am constantly always racialized and I can do nothing about that. But what I can do is I can 
live my life in such a way that is true to who I am. So for instance, I do not provide demographic information about race. I'm not a race person in this way because I don't want to reinforce this problematic. I don't give racial information to doctors because I don't want to continue the racialization of people and myself. So there are opportunities that I find and take to make sure the world understands that this thing that we have been doing, we don't have to do it and I won't do it. Now, and I think that that's not academic. That's a living, a practical, pragmatic life. Now, with respect to Rachel Dolazar, you know, so the question is, why was that a problem? What did this person do such that, you know, the world was on fire? Now, it's very clear that she violated something sacred. That is, she was seen to be uh, appropriating or misappropriating an identity that is not properly hers. It wasn't given to her. She might ascribe to it, but it wasn't given to her. And further, it's not supposed to have been given to her. Now, I grant, and David and I, we always sort of battle a little bit about this point. I grant that indeed race does not equal skin color. And we have a lot of diffusers there to show us that that's not the case. But in her case, it was an example of race equals skin color. First, and then, of course, history. Because once you learn the history, once you understand that her parents were and are white people, then it's impossible for her to be a black person. So the thinking goes. But in the, initially, it was said that she wore her hair in braids and that she tanned her skin, etc., to seem darker. She was putting on blackface, right? She was in disguise. Now, I think the Rachel case was problematic in part because obviously it was deceptive. And obviously it's because for African-American folks, the ones who thought that this was a problem, they simply don't think that you can change your racial identity, even if you desire to change it, right? And so people felt it as an affront. They felt as if she could have done all the things that she wanted to do and was doing the NWACP work that she was doing. She could have done it without having to do blackface. And doing blackface was not seen as something that was good. It was seen as something that was inappropriate, was bad, was harmful. Can I add something here? Absolutely. You know, we don't think it's possible to change race because we don't think there's something to change in the first place, good. right? Remember, we're race abolitionists. So that, you know, the idea that you could change race is just like putting perfume on a pig, basically, from our point of view. Now, so I think it would be interesting to wonder what conclusion we should draw had Rachel Dolezal been an adoptive child of an African-American. So she grows up in that environment. She absorbs the culture or the cultural nuances. Could we say that she's not black, as Sabrina and I would say, and many other people would say for different reasons, but she is African-American. And I'm much more comfortable with that. 
I think it's possible. And the Jamaican experience shows this very, right. very well. That's I right. mean, there are hardcore Jamaicans mm -hmm. who speak Patois and just do everything and have that sensibility. <laughs> they have this kind of skin color. And of course, what usually happens is that people hear and see them and they're like, what? Yeah. And of course, us in Jamaica, we're like, out of many, one. So <laughs> I would also like to just say one thing about the charge of sounding academic. I just want to make a point that what does that mean? I mean, you could use the term that's academic to say it's, you know, it's up in cloud cuckoo land, it's detached from the real world, so on and so forth. But our view of the role of philosophy is very significantly, it's just about thinking things through and helping people to think things through, which is extraordinarily important in this particular case, because race has over the centuries and continuing into the present been responsible for so much evil. I mean, it's something we really need to think about. People have difficulty thinking about, and people are scared to think about. You can't think about these things without talking about them. Sure. But everyone's scared of making the wrong move or so on and so forth. So we see the academic is not something separate. Yes. I think it's absolutely necessary for us to have more robust conversations about this because even though we want to, you know, eliminate the notion of differentiation or superiority based on somebody's skin color, we still double down on race to such an extent that we actually reinforce in my opinion, the things that we don't want, and we don't enter into a conversation to talk about even the notion of what the world would look like. You talked about a thought experiment. experiment. What would the world look like if we did not anchor on the essentialization of racialization? And to me, as a person that works in the DEI space, I fear sometimes, like what if we even just enter into a conversation like this, I could be canceled from all my colleagues. I probably have because I have challenged some of these notions of how white supremacy shows up and what would happen if we de-emphasize or, you know, in your case, you know, just eliminated the notion of race. Yeah. People are just not even willing to go there because it doesn't seem to suit them. And I'm like, do I challenge that because people start worrying about their own, you know, well-being and jobs? As this is what they've anchored on. Right. I don't know how to resolve that. Now, one of the things I think is interesting about this conversation, and I think typically the way these conversations have gone, like someone hearing that they're watching this, these two people, they envisage a world in which we don't do race. We stop this practice, racial practices. And by the way, my name is Sabrina Smith, and I'm not black. Whoa! They're watching this, and they're wondering, what is wrong with this person? Right? And they're surprised. And I'm wondering if David were to say he's not white, if people would be like, whoa. Because typically, it's black people who are supposed to affirm their identity. Right? I like to say that the form of the human being is white, learned, elevated, all that is positive. When we think human being, the form of the human being is that kind of a thing, right? And so the form of the human being 
realizing in my kind of configuration, it's like a distortion of nature. So we don't have to ask any questions about the form because this is the form. It's when this thing proclaims that they're not an animal that is being the animal identity that's being ascribed to them. Well, that's surprising because she really should identify with that, right? And my question is, why do people want me to be black? What? Like, wow. Why are you insisting <laughs> on me? Being? Why do you want me to be black? Wow. I don't know how I could even as a DEI person even go there, Sabrina, like, well, because it makes me feel more comfortable or because you look like me and I need to know that there's philosophy professors that have a skin color similar to mine. I can and, and now that's good because what we should say, look, I live in New Hampshire. There are few of me, fewer of me than there are of people who are clothed oh. like David. Now that's a different issue. The world we envisage is a world in which we're not already assessing people before these people have demonstrated to us that they are capable of this or capable of that. This brings me to the case and the reality that the Supreme Court of the United States is probably going to abolish affirmative action as we know it. Yes. Affirmative action, if I was to just kind of reduce it, it's a racial policy. What happens in a post-affirmative action world, particularly in the academy where you all dance? I'm going to jump in here. One kind of affirmative action is racialized affirmative action. What the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court is going to touch this issue, the Supreme Court ought, were we in a sane world, it would eradicate, if it were going to touch it in an eradicative way, it would eradicate affirmative action policies. So all of those other ones with lovely names, like... Legacy. Like football scholarships or whatever. All of the means by which you get a point, all of the categories that we've created and say, if you fall into those categories, you get points. They ought to be eliminated and we start from scratch. If you tamper with affirmative action policies okay. that are directed, that have been directed toward racialized people, you've harmed our society, right? We need to wake up. Racialized affirmative action is not, it has equaled Black people, but it is just one form of what has been going on forever. And so people are made to think that Special gifts are being accorded to people that they didn't earn. And they're also black. And we ought to take it away from them. But this is madness because special gifts are given to people that they haven't earned in lots of different categories. So we could then explore the question. And by the way, I'm not sure Sabrina's view on this, but I am very much in favor of affirmative action as a form of reparation. Well, of course. And I'm very much in favor of reparations. I think it's a good segue. And I'm actually a little torn on affirmative action, not because I don't believe in it, but I believe that there's been so many cases where there's, for lack of a better word, that if you got into school and you happen to be yes. of a certain yes. racialized yes. category, then, and you know, you're probably not gonna be as strong. 
And then there's yeah. also been some people that have talked about how some students have gone in and they went in as an engineering major and they came out as an African-American studies major. Yeah. And so those types of things. And then I've seen students go into North Carolina A&T, which is a historically African-American. They came out and they were amazing engineers. So what do we change in this constellation mm-hmm. if we're getting rid of affirmative action? If it's gone, we, we're going to have to do something to make sure we don't create greater inequality. That's right. Yeah. That's so the, I, then that's what I'm having challenges resolving. Like if we got rid of it and we replaced it with something that actually created the kind of equity that we say we want, I'm all for getting rid of it if we can change that. But I think we're going to get rid of it and then complain about it for the next few years and nothing is actually going to shift in the structures of academia. So what I was going to say earlier, you've now reminded me of. So as Sabrina pointed out, very term affirmative action is used somewhat dishonestly in that it's used to refer almost exclusively to affirmative action towards black people in the United States. I'll use that term. You can picture the air quotes around. So that racial affirmative action, that's the thing that's under attack, not Mm -hmm. affirmative action per se. Now, I think we need to ask ourselves why that is. And the explanation of why that is, which is part and parcel of the same thing that you've just mentioned, which is that traditionally underrepresented racialized groups who are beneficiaries or not of affirmative action are routinely suspected of not being competent, of not having earned what they receive. So what's going on here? What's going on is all of these questions are embedded in a much larger framework, right? And we can move furniture around in the house. The problem is the house, right? The problem is the whole social configuration of these things. And I'm afraid very pessimistically that no matter how many adjustments we try to make within the framework, as long as the framework is intact, we have these seemingly intractable problems. That's part of the inspiration for Sabrina and I wanting to attack the framework itself, the racial framework itself. If that were not in place, these things would be real simple. They would. They yeah. would. And I think it's really important to add here that, again, this sounds like a future that is so far from anything we can imagine. Mm-hmm. But the need for an affirmative action policy directed at racialized people in the United States, African Americans in particular, should answer the questions for us about what to do. It's because we have accepted that we have been treating those populations unequally. And we're trying now to fix it in an inappropriate way, right? And even that is not a good fix, right? Because the fix comes with, well, you didn't really earn it. And by the way, you rightly said that students themselves, they understand what it means They know that if they get in to fancy you, they know that the folks are going to say, you were at fancy you? How did you get into fancy you? You couldn't have gotten into fancy you because of your brain, Mm. right? And 
we will move toward solutions when those elements, those parts of the structure are removed. And it's not hard. We're brilliant people. Are you telling me that we can't arrive at a place where we don't see Black people as cognitively defective? Of course we can. So the policy is a redress to past and continued harms, continued suspicion, continue dehumanization, right? It's all of those things that's baked in the system. And unless we look at those things, then we're going to find more and different policies to cover, to paper over these harms. But we can't. That's a brilliant segue to us closing is that you just highlighted one of the things that's central to my practice is that we need to focus on systems versus symptoms. And we're spending a lot of time on the symptoms and Mm -hmm. the system that you all are saying that we need to obliterate, to erase, to Mm -hmm. get rid of, to abolish is the system of race and racialization because it's not Mm -hmm. serving us and it never has and it never will. So my last question, is there anything I should have asked you to that I didn't take the time or wasn't thoughtful enough to make sure that I did. One of the things you might've asked is how do our fellow academics regard us <laughs> with respect to these issues? And as Sabrina put it a few weeks ago in a conversation with a student, they think there's something wrong with us. We're nice people, but we're obviously cognitively deformed. Something is wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's in general. But of course there are, there's a minority of academics who have the same sort of view as we have. And it just, by the way, I think very interestingly, a number of them are racialized as black. And Sabrina, anything I should have asked? I can't think of anything because I think it was a nicely rounded conversation. Mm. After we had our preparation call, I talked to my wife who is, her parents immigrated from Spain before she was born. Her parents are, both did not finish high school. They came to this country and just worked like a lot of immigrants do to this country and many others. And so my wife grew up in the time where you couldn't have two passports. So my wife is technically still Spanish because you don't become naturalized here just because you're born here. So my son right now is technically Spanish and American here in this country. He happens to be a light brown colored child with curly hair. And that looks a little bit like his dad. And he speaks Deutsch. He's going to speak German, French. My wife speaks French to the kids, English and Spanish because of his grandparents. He's going to have a whole different orientation to the world. And I talked to her after I talked to you all. And I said, I don't want to bring him into this world, having that concept ascribed to him to the point where he feels like he must subscribe to it. Mm-hmm. He wants to subscribe to various, all his various cultures. He should be free to do that. And that conversation just was liberating for me to even reflect on it. So I want to thank you all for the opportunity to reflect on it with my wife. And we both agree that we're not going to 
ask him to subscribe to anything that he is not interested in subscribing to or feeling like he has to be forced to do so. I think that's fantastic parenting and loving parenting. So I applaud your even trying it on. And I think he will have a rich life. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Also, if you haven't bought Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, my book, please pick it up. We also have a Substack now under the name Reconstructing Inclusion. I'll be putting more content on that Substack before you know it. Make it a great day. Peace.